and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. I am Tegan. That is Yaram. Hello. Yaram is sick again. <laughs> it's now a drinking game where you take a shot every time. I don't know. Yaram is not sick. Yaram is sick. I don't know. It's um. It depends on what you want from your night. Like if you want to mm. get hammered very quickly, you take a shot every time I'm sick because then you're just like constantly drinking. And mm. if you want to have an easy night, you do the opposite and just... Nonetheless, Yoram has kindly dragged himself out of bed or off the floor or wherever he was, <laughs> feeling sorry for himself. He's um, taken some some fancy drugs and <laughs> fennel tea and has joined us here tonight. Yeah, I did the, the German hardcore medication, which is one paracetamol and a big cup and of tea. tea. Of, of yes. herbal tea, like an infusion, not even what you call a proper tea. And uh, that's what we do when we get sick here. And does it work? No. <laughs> it's it's absolutely placebo. I mean, the paracetamol hopefully does help a little bit, but the tea is just to make me feel good. I feel like warm, warm drinks are good to soothe your throat if you've been coughing a lot or, yeah, you know, it, it can't hurt at this stage. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, that's the... A lot of our German medication is based on the principle, oh, it can't really hurt, so let's. why not do it? <laughs> yeah, you, you'll get better naturally anyway, and then you'll get sick again anyway, because you have two small children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're bringing home lots of fun. Um, they're also bringing home raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily my kids who brought home the raccoons. Um, the raccoons brought themselves, but like yesterday I was in my living room, and suddenly I heard the cats hissing and I was I thought they, they were fighting each other again, which they sometimes do, rarely, but sometimes do. But then they were both hissing at the, the balcony door and there were like two raccoons on our balcony on the first floor that climbed up and then sat there. I think they were also confused. Like they didn't, I don't know what their, their goal was there because yeah. they, they were also just like crouched and hissing themselves and being like all puffy. Um, so they were also confused by the cats, but they also didn't go away for like 15 minutes. And Maybe it was like safe up there. Maybe there was something like a fox downstairs and they just wanted to be like oh, that's a up good and idea. safe. Like they, I, I guess raccoons normally climb trees quite a lot. And yeah. Yeah, because I the thought they, if they were looking for food, we have a compost bin sort of 15 meters away and that's much fuller and has much more like food for them available than... I mean... My my honest guess is that they know how to get into your house because you don't lock the balcony door enough and they just were surprised that you were home. Like normally <laughs> when you're not home, they come in, they open your like you, they open the kitchen door, they help themselves <laughs> to some food in the fridge and then they quietly leave. And you just you've never noticed until now. This has been going on since like twenty twenty and that's just like the wilderness has come back into the city with COVID and that's their thing. I mean that we don't have the door open so much, but I would like to. I would like the image that we have little raccoon burglars sneaking in at night uh, through our living room and just get grabbing what they can from the kitchen. But no, I think um, yeah, I haven't seen them before, and our cats were like very irritated by that as well and surprised. I feel like if that would be a common occurrence, the cats would, I don't know, be more used to it. So enough about raccoons. Uh, what have you been doing, Tegan? Had you had? Uh, did you have any weird visitors? Wait, did I? I don't know. I, <laughs> Do you know something I don't know? I have. Uh, I don't know anything about your week. <laughs> no, I mean I'm I'm currently 
house sitting a friend's cat, which is quite enjoyable. Um, the friends had to. I'm I'm kind of. It's one of those like very long haired cats, and I spend most of my time taking fur out of my mouth. But it's also like the best cat in the world. It's so cuddly and so purry. And I've now also like brushed out about a cat's worth of fur from the cat. So I think if I become overly emotionally attached, I can just like leave them the fur in a pile and take the cat back to my house with me. But other than that, I also went um, yesterday to see a a play about Australian f- the fires of 2019 and climate change and how it was like it wasn't really a play. It was like a one man act, like dramatic act, I would say, about how we can learn from the lessons of the deep history of humanity for the future, which is kind of a niche topic, I think. Mm-hmm. Australia plus climate change. It's very like. <laughs> my niche and I, I took my boyfriend to that to see if that would be a a fun fun and sexy evening for us to spend together <laughs> it's pretty good actually um so it was like a monologue it was a monologue but it was sort of like um cutting between uh sort of a bit a bit present time but mostly cutting between uh december 2019 so this is when the bushfires were completely going out of control in australia um and this guy is like australian so he was talking about being in the uk and having friends back there and worrying about them and he was cutting between that and thinking about how we can fix our way of responding to the the climate emergency by looking back in the time to see how humans had dealt with struggles in the past um, and I, I don't think I want to give the spoiler away for what the lessons are. <laughs> I mean, it's a climate change story, so um, it's often yeah. pretty bleak or sometimes What very do you hopeful. think the lessons, like, if you were doing that, what would the lessons from the past be? Um, <laughs> stop, yeah. stop messing up, please. Um, stop using <laughs> fossil fuels and have a more like a sensible policy to protect uh, wetlands and and wildlands i mean like he's he's using a deep past he's not using like the last few hundred years he was like going to like neanderthal man times so what sort of oh yeah i mean stay in the caves <laughs> stop that with the fire and the the wheels and everything it's 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 leading nowhere good <laughs> cool it sort of ties into our uh, book that we've read for the for the book club, which I haven't edited yet. Um, so that will come out sometimes later. I have, which is rare, but right now I have like four or five like episodes that I have to edit. Um, for for, for those of stuff. you playing at home, we have a plant book club where we nerdily read nerdy plant books, books about plants, with a group of our friends, and then we just discuss what we yeah. loved and what we hated about the books, right? And we we were reading Rambunctious Gardens, and mm. it is all about conservation. And one of the topics in the book is about defining baselines and figuring out when was nature nature, and when did humans yeah. start to change it, and in the end, what or like one point that you can make is as soon as humans like massively use technology, which can be already like fire or spears and, and hunting, they started changing the environment. Like when they were killing mm. off the megafauna, like um, mammoths and ground sloths and all of these things, they changed nature. They changed how vegetation could develop because suddenly these large mammals that would trample areas were gone and you would get denser uh, forests and stuff like that um so coming to the question like what would we change it's like yeah maybe 
don't kill all of the large animals because then that leads to all of the cascade that we have but, now. But like, then we wouldn't have survived, right? I mean, yeah. we survived because we, we ate those large animals, right? That's part of the... Yeah, but maybe that would have been good. <laughs> it's pretty nihilistic. I'm sorry. I'm nihilistic tonight. Um, uh. Nihilistic? I don't know. Um, but anyway... <laughs> Let's talk about plants. favorite plant <laughs> um, my favorite plant this week is um, dipsacus of unknown subs or species um, so that's the genus dipsacus and um, I don't know the, the exact species because the researchers that study this specific plants that I'm talking about today they also didn't know because they sampled them in the wild and didn't like do an in-depth analysis of the species identity. But what is important for Dipsacus is that this is a plant that does uh, that creates phytotelmata. And Tegan, you know what phytotelmata are. Because you quizzed it's me the, on it. Yeah, it's it's at the roots, the air roots. No, it's not the air roots. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. What's a phytotelmata? That's a Oh my goodness, I know it! <laughs> I just I'm ashamed. I'm filled with shame. I'm just happy that I could re like do a uh, Uno reverse card on this one where you quizzed me, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and now I can quiz you on it. Yeah, now our listeners are reading that we just always have our computers and we're always just Googling what the other person is speaking. You've ruined the magic. You've won a point, Yaron, but you've also like undermined <laughs> the, the beauty of our show, the magic of our, of our show. So maybe, do you want to remind everyone what phytotomata are, or do you just want to like bathe in the in the knowledge that you know what it is and nobody yeah, else does? Yeah, now I know, and and the rest of the audience shouldn't know, <laughs> so I can feel slightly superior. Um, <laughs> no, it's basically um, a space, like a some part of a plant that forms a, a cavity, a bowly thing that water can go into, things can go into, and that can then become a habitat. So, my favorite example um, is always these like. Uh, like pitcher plants or um, bromeliads, I think, is, is the best example of them. Yeah, and in this case, Dipsacos plants, uh, they create, uh, they grow in the staggered leaf formation. It also forms a cup shape around the central stem. So you have the central stem that grows up and then you have the uh, leaves around it that form a little basin. And in Slovakia, researchers have sampled these basins in the wild. They went out to a number of locations and they took water samples from these basins. Uh, so last time we talked about phytotelmata, you told us all that they are these little caverns, these little basins full of life and life that we don't really know yet. So there are all kinds of microorganisms or other like even larger organisms that we have Mini no idea. Mini ecosystems. Yeah, exactly mini ecosystems that we don't fully understand yet. So they're really exciting. And now researchers looked at these uh, phytotelmata in the Dipsacus plants. And what they found was not more life, but what else do we find everywhere? Pollution? Microplastics, yes. Oh, hooray. They found microplastics there. And while this is like, it's sort of, it's a little bit bleak, but also not really surprising. We've talked about in the past that we have found like microplastics in the deep sea and on the highest mountaintops, pretty much everywhere on the planet, we find these tiny little fibers or granules or little bits of, of plastic. Um, so 
it's not too surprising that you also find them in a plant. However, these little phytotomata don't really exist for that long. It's not that they can accumulate microplastics from the environment for, uh, over a long period of time because they only exist for a couple of weeks at a time. And therefore, it is um, exciting to like understand the, the, the movement of these microplastics. How can they accumulate in such a short amount of time? They even had some, like one of the hypotheses that need to be tested is now, could it be snails, for example, that have microplastics on them and then they crawl in there because they found snails in these basins as well. So they could be a vector for microplastics to be brought in there. Um, but okay. studying this sort of short-term... Uh, collection points for microplastics could lead help us in understanding better the way microplastics move through through the environment um, or just make us more terrified yeah i mean until now it's just yet another place where we find microplastics where we didn't think before that we will find them there so it's a little bit uh it's a little bit sad a little bit terrifying uh but also opens up lots and lots of new questions that we can try to answer now like how do they get there can we do something about it uh what do microplastics do when they are in the environment? Speaking of things that are found in a place that maybe they're not supposed to be, I have also a favourite plant for this week. My favourite plant. So this is actually a plant that was the, the sort of discovery of the plant was published back in 2020. And I don't think we've talked about it yet. I think we've talked about cousins of this plant, but not this new species. I, I did try to search through our back catalog because I was like, how did we miss this? But I think it kind of slipped in there in the COVID times. Um, and it's a plant that was sort of discovered by accident uh, by somebody who was looking for something quite different. They were looking instead for fungi and they came across this plant. And it's a very special plant that's found in Australia, and it's special because it grows underground. Do you know what this type of plant is, Yoram? I mean, there are these parasitic plants. Um, there are these ghost piper thing as well. That sometimes, like, they grow out of the understory or like out of the, just the underground uh, with these like weird white structures that have that don't have chlorophyll because they don't do photosynthesis because they're parasites. So I guess something like that. Yeah, so this is a new species of Rhizanthella. So it is one of these underground plants. It is a parasite. Um, it's actually a type of orchid. And Rhizanthella orchids are only found in Australia. There's only, I think, four or five species of them now. Um, and they were sort of first discovered back in the 1920s in a farm when somebody was plowing away for the sake of farming, like turning the soil over. And they noticed that there was this like super weird, it looks like a kind of pink, almost like crystalline gelatinous small flower, quite pretty pale pink with like darker globules inside, almost um, like pomegranate sort of structures inside, but no leaves. Um, and it's, it's not bothering to do normal things that normal plants do. So it's got a flower, but it's not got proper leaves. Um, it's not photosynthesizing. And these plants are pretty amazing just because what sort of plant is living its life underground? What sort of plant doesn't bother to make leaves? And when it was first discovered, it was just a weirdo. It was one of these new Australian weirdo species that don't make any sense um, to the point that they actually made wax models of it and they took them back to Britain and were like showing them around and being like, check this thing out. Check this weird thing we found in the soils of Australia. Um, and yeah, people were sort of moving the earth around and they found several other species um, and several other types and populations of them. 
but it is generally considered quite sort of a rare thing. Um, they're protected because it looks like farming has sort of damaged the ground that they'd normally be found in, but also they're quite difficult to find, like all of the different species of this genus and the different populations and individuals of the population, because as noted, they are underground. So this is one of their their problems. So we've talked, I think, before about the West Australian version of this. This is Risenthella gardneri. And I think I mentioned that one of the, the cool things about it is that because it's a parasite, it just like sucks all of its nutrients from fungi. It doesn't make leaves, but it also has basically given up having a chloroplast or a plastid genome. So in normal plants, we've got the nuclear genome with like most of the genetic information. And then we've got genomes also in the mitochondria and also in the plastid, which is like the chloroplasts. And usually plastids have like 120 or around 100 different genes. And some of these genes make up sort of like important, like essential genes, they're called, things that we think plants need sort of to survive. So things may be involved in like fatty acid biosynthesis. Um, some of these genes are involved in in making things. So like ribosomal, rRNA, um, tRNA, so things that are needed to make proteins. And then a lot of the genes are just things that are needed for photosynthesis to make photosynthetic proteins. And these rhizanthellas, um, at least the gardenery um, species in West Australia, has just basically done away with all of those genes. It's got obviously some of the essential ones. It's got um, some of the rRNA and some of the tRNA, so these like making genes. But it's basically dropped all the photosynthetic genes because... But does it still have the, the organelle? Does it still have a type of chloroplast thing like it's not a chloroplast when it doesn't do photosynthesis but like a plasto thing uh, where these genes are still contained or did they move the genes from the organelle into the nucleus no it still has um plastids i guess um it's got like like colors and pigments in the flowers so i'm guessing those are like chromoplasts so that's like a type of, of plastid so the cousin of a chloroplast basically um i'm not sure how they are structurally i assume they look similar to the ones you'd find in flowers but i haven't actually I haven't looked into this. I'm sure somebody's done that. It's just they don't need to produce most of the the genes that are needed for photosynthesis. They just like mm -hmm. don't bother because they're they're not doing the hard work. Yeah. So this is this is one of my favorite and um people back when I first started doing scientific work in a lab, the people in that lab had an interest in this species and were like going and trying to find it, you know, going on these long nature walks and, and trying to work out where they are, which was also difficult, and then doing the molecular biology side of it. So there's a paper that's published showing that this Risenthella species has only a few genes, um, and that was one of the groups I worked in when I first started science. But now there's this discovery of a new member of this genus. So this one was discovered, I think, originally in 2016 even, but it took four years before it was um, completely sort of described and the paper describing it was published. And it was actually described by a 65-year-old retiree who is not super interested in plants. She's actually more interested in fungi and she's a scientific illustrator. So her name is Marie Elliott, and she was basically poking around in the leaf litter looking for native fungi species that, so that she could make some nice drawings of them. And then she sort of poked a little bit too much and a 
thing that she described as a lovely pink thing <laughs> surfaced from the leaf litter. And she said that she didn't really know what it was, but she's like, cool, interesting pink. And then somebody else in her party of pokers got really excited. They were in ecology. And they were like, this is amazing. It looks like an underground orchid. And then they sort of contacted um, some scientists who have been working on these underground orchids for a long time. And that sort of led to further discoveries. One of the weird things is that, again, because it's underground, it's it's really hard to find. So they, they identified it first in June 2016. Um, but then people went out looking for it again so researchers from the department of environment in the state spent 10 days scouting forests in the area trying to find more orchids and they couldn't find them they just like were underneath the leaf litter so in the end they actually had to get some dogs to play plant detective and basically in the same way you would train like a pig or dogs to like sniff for truffles these dogs were trained to sniff out these orchids and within 10 minutes these Spaniels managed to find more orchids, so they were able to find some other populations. But how how did they train the dogs? They need they need some sample material to to teach them. It's yeah, I guess they had the the first population that like she found, and they were trying to find other individuals mm -hmm. and other populations. So I guess they somehow they didn't explain the dog training process in the article. I can link the article if people are interested. But yeah, so they then used the dogs. They trained them somehow. We don't know how. Um, and <laughs> the dogs went to find them. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's a lovely story. That's a combination of a favorite plant, of uh, a non-male researcher, and a cat fact, all in one story. <laughs> Very nearly. So I'm going to link to Marie Elliott's page. I'm going to link to um, an article that describes sort of using these dogs to find them. There's also um, this description. So it's a paper that came out in... Lacasteriana, which is an orchid-specific journal, I believe. Um, and this is sort of describing the new species. It's Rhizanthella speciosa. Apparently, it hasn't yet been recognized as a full new species, so I'm not sure what needs to happen for that to mm -hmm. like take in place. One thing I do want to mention is that the authors of the paper are the two scientists, so Mark Clements and David Jones, And I thought it was a bit strange to me that the person who discovered it wasn't included in the authorship. Obviously, they're acknowledged in the paper, but I was a bit wondering about that. Um, but anyway, that's maybe a discussion for another time. <laughs> I guess like they didn't recognize what it was, but also they just they discovered it. They they found this entire new species, right? Um, yeah, which is which has been a little bit of a discussion in. Mm -hmm. The I think there was this example a few years ago where there was a plant identified via Facebook. Somebody took a photo and then somebody else was like, hey, that's new. And the person who took the photo didn't realize it was new. But at the same time, if they yeah. hadn't taken the photo, it's very complicated. Yeah, yeah I, I um, would call that like a vital contribution to the success of the paper or to the, the, the possibility of the paper. I would put them at least in the middle author list, like at least maybe... Not necessarily the first author or the last author, but I mean, there's anyway like a plant specific plant science or like biology specific problem. I know in other disciplines you could just like put them in the author put list because it's, because it's alphabetical. But here you have also all of this ranking. But they they in my opinion they deserve to be on the paper because um, like I've seen 
I've seen other people be on papers for like me- more obscure reasons. Yeah, more obscure like addition like support roles where they help with some like other I, I detail mean, and they're important yeah. and they deserve to be on the paper. But if these people deserve to be on the paper, I think so the discovery. We, we, well. don't, we don't know the scenario here. It's, it's yeah, not sure. that like they might have just said we we're not interested. Like here, no. go ahead. And as I said, the acknowledgments do say you know we thank Marie Elliott who discovered the new species and brought it to their attention. And it also um, mentions the name of Sky Moore who. I believe is ecologist who got excited and somebody else, Alison Webb, who also assisted in the, the process. So it's it's possible that they were just like, you know what, this is not, you know, our part is done. We're excited. Um, yeah. But anyway, I think this paper is nice because you can see some pictures of the orchid. It's otherwise, it's really a little bit hard to describe. It's, I think maybe a sea anemone is the best way to describe it. It looks like an underground sea anemone. Um <laughs> Yeah, but go and check out some photos there. We'll put all the links in the bio. I also have an underground-related story, although most of the stuff happens above ground. But I'm talking about Pando. Um, also something we talked about in the past, Pando is this massive organism, uh, often considered one of the largest organisms in the world. It's There's always like some debate of who exactly is the largest organism. Is it some, some fungus somewhere? Is it Pando, which is... Uh, a collection of of trees. Uh, now I forgot which specific tree they are, but um, they are all connected underground through through roots and are all clonal um, relatives to one another. So they're all clones. So essentially, one big organism that shares. Like if you sample it on one end, it has the same DNA as on the other end, and. Um, this large, like one of the largest organisms in the world, is dying, or has uh, some some some. I don't know. It's a, the right word is problems, but there's a there's a very strong risk to it, and that's specifically coming from grazing. And uh, there can be some wild animals that are grazing, like deer, but also cattle apparently have access to pando, and they graze there. And so what they do is they kill off all of the young sprouts, and so there's no replacement. And when the large the older generation of trees die, there's new new younger sprouts and, and saplings that can replenish it. And there are some conservation strategies here that uh, involve fencing areas off, but then that creates now a separation. Now that breaks up this largest organism because if you have certain communities that are fenced in, they can regenerate on a different cycle or you can even create gaps between these individual fenced areas and then you don't have the largest organism in the world anymore. Then you have things that were clones before and now can start to diverge from one another, genetically speaking. And... It would be a shame to to lose this this organism. And now people are looking into new management strategies that uh, rather focus on managing the populations of wild deer and domestic cattle, rather than trying to uh, protect just the areas there. Um, and so, yeah, that's and that's pretty much the the story here. That conservation biologists have this problem that this this aspen forest, this pando forest is under threat and has a very particular situation that requires a particular conservation strategy. I feel like you've already told us at one point that Pando is dying because of climate change. Yeah, that as well. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> goodbye, Pando. <laughs> like, I feel... <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was the one that's kind of sort of on a down, on a down topic today. But... <laughs> 
I mean, looking at my facts that I brought today, um, I think I, I'm I'm not uh, here for the happy stories. I hope you brought all of the happy stories today. <laughs> I think we're going to have a new rule where Yoram is not allowed to bring any stories about climate change, and that should already let limit. I mean, that's not Maybe about climate change. This climate one is change about or cattle and deer. Yeah. Maybe no 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 stories that relate to humanity destroying plants. <laughs> Is that good? I think that would cover the microplastics and the grazing. Yeah, I mean, with the microplastics, I will then be nitpicky and debate whether or not we actually have shown that microplastics are bad. Because to my knowledge, we haven't. We're just very afraid of them because we don't just don't know. So we, we should be afraid. But we haven't shown any proof yet. And so I would be... Yeah. I'm anxious about the fact that they can get into our brains. That doesn't make me feel happy. That's yeah. true, right? That's yeah, not. they 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 can cross cell barriers and and but we haven't shown that's, yet that that's bad when they cross it. Yeah. We just seen them sometimes in cells where they definitely shouldn't be. I we just don't know if there's. I think there's a British there's a British comedian David Mitchell. He's in um, Peep Show, and I saw him once do like he's quite famous for doing rants, and one of his rants is about um, all those ads where it's like there are eighty three billion. Bar- living on the average pillow within your home and then the ad is of course that you should buy their pillow because their pillow is better or bacteria free or something you know it's all these things of like beware and he's like yeah clearly if these are all there it's fine (laughs) all this tells us is that like it's fine for us to have any three billion bacteria living in that pillow like because otherwise we don't surely we'd be dead like if we all have this problem it's not really a problem like yeah yeah yeah. and there's also obviously there are some arguments about optimizing our health and whether having microplastic in our like airways is the best way to go about that like yeah but there's some some other discussions that i've seen that uh, i think that was also from the hank green podcast uh, the um dear dear hank and john podcast where they were also talking about that uh, because they i think there's some statistics that say we eat about a credit card worth of microplastic per year that one too yeah I, um, that, I literally came up in my my doom climate australia play that i went to yesterday yeah and so this is a, and i mean we don't see tons of diseases coming from that like we don't see lots and lots of people being hospitalized for eating credit cards or like microplastic worth of the of an amount of credit card and they they said like we also eat a lot of dust and other like inorganic matter that is just in the air or in our foods and it just passes us and it doesn't do any harm and maybe and this is again hypothetical goes into our lung that doesn't okay yeah yeah but hypothetical uh, hypothetically like most of the plastic that goes through our body that's part of that amount per year is probably just like the dust that we eat and can't really do any harm but again hypothetical like we don't really know it can like there might be some harm that we haven't found it couldn't link back to it yet so i don't want to be like the microplastic uh apologizer here um <laughs> but it's, it's as i said like it's it's something where we simply don't know and that can be that can be um frightening um but it could also be fine but we have to see like in 10 20 i don't know what time we'll have an answer whether we were rightfully worried or not Speaking of dust, I actually have a story that um, I found reported in MPJ Climate and Atmospheric Science. So it's about the Amazon and trying to work out how dust, debris from the canopy, fungal spores, pollen, all that kind of stuff floats off the canopy. So if you imagine you've got this sort of dense amount of trees, trees tend to shed things. 
Um, and some of those things are like helpful things the trees want to shed and want to like send on their way, like their own pollen, which should hopefully, you know, pass the seeds to the next generation or pass the, the, the genetic material. But there's also things um, like fungal spores, which, you know, might be good for the plants, but might also not be good for the plants. And also just like random basically, I would say. Um, so this was an experiment that was looking at um, sort of large, chunky um, aerosols that come from a biological source. So they're called giant bioaerosol particles. Um, and it was identifying and quantifying them above the Amazon rainforest. And I mostly like this because I think I think the results are a bit what you'd expect. Um, they found, you know, lots of spores, spores from ferns, fungi, bryophytes, so things like mosses, um, some yeasts, they found some pollen, and then they found just like other particles which were not really clear, and then like canopy debris, which is just, you know, bits of bits of creepy stuff that's going through. So I think that wasn't super surprising. And then they also found that there was differences um in the the seasons so like you know if it was wetter the that's sort of keeping all of these these fluffy bits down and if it's windier it's allowing them to to spread more easily and go higher um but that was the thing that i really liked about it if you look at the the first figure in this article you see how they did the experiment and it's basically a picture of some trees with a big stick going up from it um and they were just yeah basically looking at the height above the canopy and seeing how high these different things can get depending on the different mm -hmm. conditions and yeah it's just kind of fun to me but it obviously does have relevance as far as like the ability for plants to spread their genetic material but also for the spread of fungi again often very good for plants some of them can be bad so things like that and the movement of things um through the air and you know what maybe maybe bioplastics maybe microplastics can be in there too Yoram, if that's <laughs> something that, that you're personally interested in <laughs> might be a bit too big i'm not sure what the the size is relatively yeah yeah but uh the, the, the pollen being so ubiquitous and also being part of the dust is something um that i've seen like mentioned in like very different areas like the the, there's fossil records of pollen and these mm. like tiny pollen particles because there's like some pollens uh, but yeah because some of these these pollen material like the the biomaterial that they're made of is some of the hardest biomaterial that exists and so they d really don't break down or they can literally imprint in stone and then can be analyzed in in fossil records so that's like the spreading of pollen dust, incredibly important there. And then coming even to stuff like forensics, where people's like whereabouts could be traced by, based on the pollen dust that's been on them or on clothes or on items. Uh, so this like ubiquitous presence of pollen in the air coming from all kinds of plants, not only trees, is really important and really found in many different places. I just screamed out cryptopollen really loudly because I believe that cryptopollen was the name of these like old fossil records of pollen. And it's not. Apparently, if you Google cryptopollen, it's some sort of cryptocurrency <laughs> pollen <laughs> merger, which is awful. Um, if anybody knows what we're talking about, for goodness sakes, please message us. We can't. We just spent like five minutes Googling and we can't work it out. <laughs> what I did find is that there's something called palynology which is the study of dust or the study of particles that are strewn. And that basically includes the study of pollen, but also like a ton of other spores um, and <laughs> random like 
bits of stuff. So this sounds. I'm, I'm I'm sorry to anyone who's actually studying this, but this sounds something you would say at a dinner party when you want to get out of the conversation when somebody asks you, "So what are you doing?" and then you're just like, uh, "I study dust," and I think nobody will have follow up questions on that. <laughs> So I think I think it does a little bit relate to like looking at small particles. So like in the fossil record, these very small particles, but also just like generally like very small things. So it was like pollen and fungal spores and also um, like tiny microscopic organisms like planktons and stuff like that. And and maybe now also microplastics, <laughs> I, I want to say. <laughs> Get in touch and shout at us. It probably has to be of organic origin, I would guess. It probably cannot be. Mm-hmm. Um human things anyway tell us what the name of old fossilized pollen is because it's driving me mad right now (laughs) (laughs) yes please i have uh, another story about uh, that's also touches some like darker topics uh viral diseases for plants not human-made viral diseases um Uh. in soybean there is a virus that's called soybean vein necrosis autostospore virus um so a virus that Catchy. that creates necrosis in the veins of soybean, and mm-hmm. necrosis means that uh, the plant dies off at that part and it turns brown and and dies. And this is a disease that can also affect crops, as uh, like like agricultural g- uh, growth of soybean. And now researchers have studied one of the vectors of it, which is a thrips. And thrips are these tiny little. Um, Insects are just a couple of millimeters, and uh, the, the biggest ones are even like sub-millimeter size. And they can carry the virus from one plant to another. And that in itself is already kind of annoying because it means it's harder to contain the virus. But now researchers have looked at the biology of these thrips. Yeah, I feel like thrips are this thing that they're, they're kind of annoying themselves because they sort of like suck at the phloem of the plants, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they are actually pests of the plants, but they're more annoying because they they bring bugs with them. And I remember, like, when we were doing lab work, they could get into sterile tissue culture. So they're so small that they could sneak in under the basically sealed off lids. And they just, like, walk their dirty feet across the tissue culture and just, like, spread a ton of fungi and disgusting things. Um, <laughs> and then, like, they're they're not the problem in themselves. It's it's what they're carrying with them. Yeah, yeah. The plant- a bit like mosquitoes, I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah, pretty much like that. They're, they're pretty much mosquitoes of the plant world. And... I think like a mild thrips infest- uh, infestation isn't that terrible for the plant. I mean, it can get bad when it's too many and the plant is young. Then it can suck all of the, the, the juices out of the phloem. Uh, but yeah, it's diseases that they bring with them. But now researchers have looked at the thripses and what, how do they react to being around this virus? And they found a correlation here between the health of the thrips population and the presence of this virus. So whenever this SVNV virus, this soybean vein necrosis autotospore virus, is present in the thrips, they uh, lay more eggs. They have like a slight increase in the number of eggs that they, they lay, which is like, it's, I think, from like 82 to 87 on average. So not a huge increase, but some increase. And over a few generations, <clears throat> that could be a... Yeah, and few generations is is a very good point because they also looked at the doubling time of the population and that went down like fourfold or even, I think even eightfold. It was something crazy. It's usually oh, wow. like four days for doubling time of the thrips population and when the, when the virus was present, it could go down to as much as like half a day of doubling time. 
Uh, so incredibly fast doubling time for these thripses. And we don't really understand yet how that happens because apparently the virus is not attacking anything in the thripses. It doesn't give the thripses themselves any superpowers. But it seems to be that the activity of the virus makes the nutrients in the plants more accessible to the thripses by like breaking down amino acids in the plant and loading them into the phloem, which then the thripses are sucking and drinking and growing on. It just gives them a boost in nutrients. They can mm -hmm. much quicker metabolize what they're getting from the plants. And that could be one of the ways that they yeah, take advantage of the presence of this virus and how then like it's an advantage for these thripses to to carry this virus. Although I don't think it's like and an for, active decision. Yeah, but I mean it's an advantage for the virus, right? If you have a virus that like increases the amount of your hosts, that seems yeah. like a win for the virus. Yeah. And then for for growers, it means that if you want to deal with this viral disease in soybean, you have to also deal with the thripsis. And if, like attacking the vector might be a much more like viable form of, of treating the plant than trying to do something about the virus, trying to engineer virus-resistant plants might be harder to do than simply dealing with the thripsis. Yeah, I don't know how to segue on from thrips, but I do have a paper of the week. It's the paper of the week. My paper of the week is actually a paper of a few weeks ago. Um, in fact, it was published in June, but I don't think we've managed to talk about it yet. Um, and it belongs to the current issue of JXB, the Journal of Experimental Botany. It's by Joanna Chustecki and colleagues um, under the corresponding authorship of Ian Johnston. And the article is entitled Altered Collective Mitochondrial Dynamics in the Arabidopsis MSH1 Mutant Compromising Organelle DNA Maintenance. Um, so this pa paper is about a mutant. So it's an Arabidopsis, which is our normal, boring lab rat plant. Um, and it's a mutant where they've deliberately knocked out one of the genes. They've taken one gene and they've made it stop functioning. Um, the gene is called MSH1. And this gene has already been investigated somewhat. And people know that it's responsible for fixing issues in the DNA of the organelles. So as we mentioned earlier in the show, mitochondria and plastids have their own DNA. Um, and as, as with all DNA, there can be some problems. So things like UV light or reactive oxygen species, like poor diet, not enough exercise, all those things <laughs> can cause the organelles to get damaged to their DNA. Um, and there needs to be sort of mechanisms to help fix these um and nsh1 is one of the the genes which has a protein that's involved in basically fixing problems so the authors knocked that out but the point of knocking it out wasn't just to see what it does because as i mentioned there's already been some different research into this gene they actually wanted to see whether making mitochondrial dna have more problems so like preventing it from fixing itself or making it get more damaged would make the mitochondria themselves behave differently. And this comes down to a kind of special thing about mitochondria. Um, and that's the number of DNA molecules, basically that you find, or the number of genomes, mitochondrial genomes that you find in each mitochondria. What can you say about this, Yoram? <laughs> that it's um, the, the relationship is 
less than one genome per unit of mitochondria mitochondria that you find. So if you count all of the little dots of mitochondria in a cell and then you measure all of the mitochondrial DNA and just get the total amount of that, that doesn't, like, it makes it that there's less of the DNA per mitochondria than one whole genome. That means that some of them either have no DNA in them while others have like the entire genome or maybe the genome breaks apart and sometimes it fuses and sometimes it's uh, it stays it stays distant from one another and that's what leads to the fact that some people call it like a discontinued whole like it's something they like somehow the mitochondria are connected functionally but also they are not connected because you can like separate them in an electron yeah. microscopy image yeah, I mean, discontinuous whole is just one of the most uncomfortable sounding names or terminologies, <laughs> but it's basically the idea that, you know, you might imagine a, a mitochondria as a small pink jelly bean in a textbook, but actually they're kind of these um, sacs that can join up into tubules or like bunches of sacs with other sacs and they sort of fuse and fizz what's what's the opposite of fusion fission yeah they fizz and they fuse <laughs> um <laughs> and this sort of helps them share the dna and, and and move it around so i mean it's it's pretty odd like a chloroplast can have like hundreds of copies of dna a nucleus has to have a copy of the dna like, it has to have like that's what defines it as a nucleus it's weird that mitochondria are hanging around and sometimes having a couple of genomes and sometimes having no genomes depending on their mood and this is why we have this discontinuous whole because it doesn't make sense so we're like okay they're discontinuous whole <laughs> but i mean it's not just something to solve a problem of not enough genomes we actually do know that there is this fission and fusion happening continuously and people have tracked this so you can sort of make the mitochondria glow and then you can um image the, the plant leaves, for example, and see the mitochondria move and join up and then blob out again and stuff like that. And that's what basically these scientists did. So they were tracking the movement of the mitochondria and whether they were fizzing and fusing. Um, but they first knocked out this gene, which is involved in the DNA repair. So basically they created a mutant that had screwed up mitochondrial DNA. And what they found is that when they damaged the DNA of the mitochondria, the mitochondria got more sociable. <laughs> so the mitochondria started hanging out more together. They became less evenly spread. Um, they became more connected. There was more sort of these networks um, of encounters. And they don't know that this is the case, but one of their suggestions is that if there's more damage to the DNA, then the mitochondria has a way of repairing its DNA. And that way is to go and find some other DNA and basically photocopy the other DNA to fix your DNA. So the idea on this is then if you damage the DNA, the mitochondria, something happens to trigger them to look for other mitochondrial DNAs and that involves more fission. It's a bit of a fun story. Um, there's some open questions that are happening there. So firstly, it's not actually been shown that the, the mitochondria that are interacting more are exchanging their DNA, that they're replicating their DNA anymore. So it's there's no evidence that this is something that's happening sort of with biological meaning that it's leading to the repair. And it's also not at all clear how the mitochondria would signal that they have to start hooking up more often in order to replicate so there's there's no idea of what this kind of trigger or what the the message would be that would make this happen um 
Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really crazy because if you think about what mutations are, it's just like at random points on hundreds and thousands of base pairs, there's something happening there. There can be a substitution, there can be something that's deleted, something that's inserted, something that's changed from one base to another. Um, and it's really hard to imagine how that is sensed in such a way that they realize, oh, there's something that's gone wrong here and now we hang out together. I guess it would have to be something where like there's there's like a readout like there's damage it's not like a silent mutation it's something where yeah. the mutation is learning leading to either a, a broken protein or even like a transcription error that's clogging the machinery something that's enough that changes the function of the like you know outwardly yeah. changes the function of the mitochondria that then it's like uh, 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 we need to fix this and then yeah that happens but yeah it's it's a bit of a mystery I, I mean it, um, so it's not certain. And also, you know, there are other questions. Like if you look at the mutants of this plant state, they are very small, so they grow quite differently as well. So there's there's other problems going on with them. Um, so who knows? But it's kind of it's kind of a cool thing. Um, and it's also I don't know, I like I, I want to know more about these mitochondrial networks. I, I really I'm not into this whole discontinuous whole <laughs> as a <laughs> as a phrasing, but I also still want to know more about it. And just um, to mention, I did say at the top that this MSH1 um, gene, there's already been more research into what the function is. And there's actually a paper that came out in PNAS in August this year, so just like last month. And it was showing that um, MSH1 is involved in both the chloroplast and mitochondrial sorting. Mm -hmm. So this, again, is the idea that in each cell you have multiple chloroplasts and multiple mitochondria and you have multiple, therefore, different copies of the genome, which can sort of get mutations. Um, and then depending on sort of different scenarios, these mutations can either spread through all of the, the population um, or they can, you can end up with heteroplasmy where you've got a mix or you can get sort of a fixing um, into this new version or you can get removal. And they were looking at how these sort of fixing removal um, heteroplasmic to homoplasmic states happen. And they found that this gene is involved in that sorting mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, so before we go on to the final fact, the, the cat fact of the show, um, just a very quick mention, the, there was a breakthrough through, there was the announcement of the winners of the breakthrough prizes. So these are sort of very lucrative, like worth lots of money and very prestigious awards in the sciences. And I think it's a surprise to basically no one that the one of the things that won was AlphaFold. Um, so this is this new artificial intelligence um, tool to predict the structure, the 3D structure of proteins. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those things where... It's a game changer. It's a paradigm shifting um, new tool. I think it's one of those things that really has moved science forward in a leap, not just a crawl. It's it's, it's a pretty yeah. big deal. So I think that's that's not a very big surprise um, that that one. But one of the other things that also got a breakthrough prize was um, two biophysical engineers. Um, well, no, a biophysical engineer and a molecular biologist who discovered not not in plants but in little worms um the mechanisms for cell contents to organize themselves within cells but in this kind of like liquid phase separation so in droplets that are not contained by membranes so it's this mm -hmm. idea that you can have spatial separation without having to have like an actual physical structure of a membrane to spatially separate and this is really cool stuff um 
because it allows like an extra sort of way of, of regulating within the cells. So yeah, they're also on the list of breakthrough prize winners this year. Cat fact. Uh, my cat fact is a fact about a lemur, which is obviously not a cat, but I think closer to a fact a cat than most of the animals that Yarum <laughs> brings. It's actually it's a primate, so it's it's kind of more like a monkey. Um, but lemurs are these really incredible animals that are only found on um, Madagascar. They're completely unique. They're completely incredible. I think obviously we all have to go and look at the lemurs one day. Anyway, um, this is a type of lima. It's called the Sifaka. Um, it's sort of a genus that is Propithecus. Yeah, I'm sure I said that right. Anyway, um, they have taken photographs showing these animals hugging trees. And sometimes they hug a tree as an individual. So you can imagine a monkey-like animal with its arms wrapped around a tree trunk and its legs also just kind of hugging it and sometimes they form a little like loving ring and there's a group of lemurs all sort of holding hands and wrapping themselves around the trees um this is really cute behavior apparently they're probably not doing it just to be cute and charismatic they're probably doing it potentially to cool themselves down so the scientist who has been studying this her name is chloe chen kraus she found that this behavior was more likely in the hottest times of the year so the base of the tree is several degrees cooler than places either further up the tree or on the ground um so this is kind of the ideal hugging point and the lemurs kind of get together and put themselves against this nice cool tree <laughs> yeah, i'm looking at images it looks really like really cozy sometimes so they're just like hugging it yeah and i imagine that they are exposing like the as much of their sort of core um like the 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 central body uh, surface yeah. to the to to the tree trunk to really transfer the heat there i wonder i think in one of the photos it looks like one of them even has a young clinging to its the front of its stomach and that's facing the tree but i wonder if they also have a bit more um like less fur on the belly i guess they would have um, yeah. their mammals i guess they would have like um breasts or nipples or something there as well so it might be like the the quickest way to cool down is that kind of exposed yeah. soft belly underside part yeah yeah very cute and i think with that we're at the end of this week's show um thank you for listening uh if you want to get in touch with us and tell us what the name for these spores and fossils are that we completely forgot uh the specific terminology for you can reach me on twitter that's at plants pipettes you can talk to me on instagram i'm back it's at plants and pipettes as well as on facebook under the same tag at lumaka what do we call that uh yeah, at, yeah, it's the at sign, like at Plants and Pipettes on Facebook. At me on Facebook. Um, <laughs> and also we have a website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. Goodbye.